This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thank you for joining us for this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. To get your weekly dose of English history every Thursday, make sure you subscribe. Now, this month marks the 200th anniversary of the birth of a well-known English biologist, naturalist and explorer who helped develop the theory of evolution in the middle of the 19th century. But no, it's not Charles Darwin. Instead, we're talking about Alfred Russell Wallace, who formulated his ideas on evolution at the same time that Darwin was working on the same subject. Today, Wallace is commemorated with a blue plaque at his former home in South Croydon. And joining us to talk about his life and the role he played in the development of evolutionary theory are senior historian for the blue plaque scheme, Howard Spencer, and the head gardener at Darwin's former home of Down House in Kent, Anthony O'Rourke. Hello. Hello, thank you for having us. We'll talk to Anthony about the dynamic of the relationship between Darwin and Wallace later on, but turning to Howard first, let's talk about Alfred Russell Wallace's early life. I understand that he grew up in what's been described as genteel poverty. What's meant by that exactly? Well, it means that his family were essentially downwardly mobile rather than upwardly mobile. His mother was from a fairly comfortable middle-class background. His father, Thomas Vere Wallace, trained as a lawyer, but as far as we know, never practised and was always in a bit of financial bother and was eventually swindled out of all his property, which had obviously quite an effect on his family. Getting into the detail of his name, the Russell part, can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, it's only got one L, which is very important when you're Googling him, obviously, <laughs> which I hope everybody will be doing after listening to this. And the reason for that is is very prosaic. Basically, it was a mistake when his birth was recorded and that was perpetuated throughout his life. So it's Alfred Russell Wallace with one L and, it, and the Russell is normally given. There was actually a bit of a debate when they put the plaque up whether to put the, uh, the middle name in and uh, it was decided that they would. So it's a middle name. Okay. Regarding Wallace's education, did he have a good education? Well, no, it was truncated really by this uh, issue with his father being swindled out of his property. He was at Hartford Grammar School, but he, he had to leave basically. And much of the rest of his education was really sort of in places like mechanics institutes, you know, which were these kind of universities essentially dedicated to working men. This sort of chimes in with what I was saying about the family being somewhat uh, downwardly mobile. I mean, he, he was, in the end, well-educated, but just not in a conventional sense. Yeah, so could you give us a bit more detail about how he went through school? I think he, he left quite early at one stage. Well, that's right. I mean, he, I say he went to Hartford Grammar School, but then he, he left and, and actually went to work with his brother as a surveyor. And that was his sort of first career, as it were, working as a surveyor. But while he did that, he took classes at Mechanics Institute in Kington on the Welsh borders and also in Neath, which was well into Wales. These were places that he was living and, and working at as a surveyor at that uh, time. And it's here that he really sort of developed his interest in the natural world. Um, he also made extensive use of public libraries, of course, which were promoted by, among others, William Ewart, the man who also founded the Blue Plaque Scheme. I suppose if you're working outside, then of course you are getting exposure to the natural world automatically, aren't you? So I suppose that interest naturally developed from there. Um, that will have been part of it, but certainly, I mean, the academic side of it was nurtured by these mechanics institutes and by his own reading in libraries. So, I mean, he was, to a great extent, I guess, self-educated, autodidact, as we say. Okay, well, in order to look at how his career developed over his life, can you describe what sort of works he produced in order to contribute to this area, this new area of science? Well, yes. I mean, he was described as a in one publication I've looked at as a zoo geographer, which is a, an interesting uh, sort of occupational description. But that's kind of what he did. I mean, it was about the geographical distribution of animals. And indeed, that was the title of one of his most important books, one that came out in 1876, The Geographical Distribution of Animals. And then, of course, you get the second strand of, of what he did, really, which was his work on the theory of, of evolution which was sort of vaguely, we'll talk about this a bit further, get into this in a bit more detail later, I guess, but sort of contemporaneous with Darwin. 
Key publications, apart from the one I mentioned, were a narrative of travels on the Amazon and the Rio Negro from 1853 and the Malay Archipelago, 1869, both of which described extensive trips that he'd been on. I mean, it was it was all work done in the field that he wrote about. While he's doing all this work in this new area of science, did he have a fulfilled personal life and did he go on to find a partner, etc.? Yes, he did. Yes, when when he when he returned from both these long voyages abroad, he married Annie Mitten, who was the daughter of a fellow naturalist. Uh, that was in the spring of eighteen sixty six. They had three children, a daughter and two sons. One of whom sadly died at the age of six in eighteen seventy four, but the other two lived on till adulthood, and it was apparently a long and happy marriage. We've mentioned in the introduction that, of course, that he was a contemporary of Charles Darwin. They were both working on similar ideas, albeit separately. When was Wallace actually born in relation to Darwin? I mean, how contemporaneous were they? Well, he was 14 years younger. So he was born in, in, on the 8th of January, 1823. As, you, as you've said, we are currently marking the 200th anniversary of his birth. Whereas Darwin was born in 1809, so he was the you know, there was a, there was a sort of a gap between them in that sense. It's interesting that um, these two men who aren't actually born that close together are, are working on similar ideas around the same time. How similar then or different were their respective family and educational backgrounds? Bearing in mind that we've just covered that Wallace was kind of autodidactic, as you said. Yes, and and from a, a you know slightly impoverished or downwardly mobile family, whereas Darwin wasn't. I mean, he he was very fortunate in his background. His father was a, a wealthy doctor, and um, he had the full higher educational experience, which was denied to Wallace, um, Edinburgh University, and so on. So he had the advantages which Wallace didn't in that sense. Interestingly, I think we covered on a previous podcast about Charles Darwin that Charles Darwin was put off by all the anatomy side of things at. Uh... At university, wasn't he? And that's sort of why he sort of steered off into biology, but of animals and, and studying nature in that way. I believe that's right. I don't know if Anthony has, has a bit more to say about that side of things. Yeah. Absolutely. So you can imagine at that time in Edinburgh, looking at amputations in a time before there was any anaesthetic. And I think there's a, a very sort of famous tale of Darwin running from one of the auditoriums at one point, just because it was so unbelievably gruesome. And he realised that medicine was certainly not the career for him. So whilst Darwin had all these blessings, financially, I suppose, he actually almost chose to reject them. Whereas Wallace had um, fewer opportunities, shall we say, and went into it in a slightly different way. How did they get to know each other then? Because uh, if they're working on similar ideas, were they sort of mixing in the same circles? Uh, Were they writing letters to each other? How did it work? My understanding is that it was via writing letters and that they were were already in touch by letter by the time Wallace wrote what turned out to be his sort of bombshell letter in 1858 from the uh, Malaccas, which are a set of islands which are now part of Indonesia. And I think, you know, they would have been part of this whole scientific establishment where people knew each other and they were kept in touch. And it was done, of course, in those days, mostly by letter, partly because, you know, there was this obviously geographical split with Wallace being away on this uh, very long trip. That's my understanding. Anthony, is that, is, does that chime in how you understand how they got to know each other? That's absolutely right. Darwin wasn't particularly familiar with Wallace, although I think the two gentlemen had met very briefly previously, although Wallace was very familiar with Darwin and really looked up to him, which is why he wrote to Darwin outlining his ideas. He was later to write that the Voyages of of the Beagle were one of the two works whose inspiration I owe my determination to visit the tropics as a collector. So he really looked up to Darwin and saw him almost as a, well, he was his inspiration. Yeah, I guess there's a degree of deference there. And that is partly, as as you've indicated, based on on the difference in age, the fact that, you know, Darwin's 14 years older, and he has by, I think, general consent been at this for, you know, a bit longer, really. So um, that, that's a sort of maybe key to understanding the relationship. So Wallace perhaps saw Darwin as a bit of a mentor for his nascent ideas? I think it's fair to say that geographically, the men weren't born a million miles from each other. Wallace born in Wales and Darwin born in the market town of Shrewsbury in Shropshire, which of course shares a, a border with Wales. But Darwin was born into this very middle upper class family. So he had all of these privileges which Wallace didn't have. He was able 
to go to Edinburgh, and he was able to reject that and then be sent to another university, to Cambridge, where his career progressed. And so, as we've heard, Wallace was really self-taught. So, for Darwin, money wasn't an object, whereas financial problems for Wallace, they did dog him throughout his life. And Darwin was very, very aware of this. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? How the sort of financial deference perhaps created some sort of need to look up to someone who's got more advantages financially and perhaps is also just generally in age more experienced in life, uh, more senior. I think that's an interesting dynamic between the pair. That's right. And um, the interesting thing about Darwin is that he didn't adhere to the strict structural social system that was in place in the Victorian period. He was perfectly happy with establishing friendships with people like Wallace and establishing friendships with people in working men's clubs, in pigeon fanciers clubs. And so he really did not see that uh, you had to stick to your social order, if you like. And so that would have been otherwise an obstacle to the men forming a relationship. But of course, thankfully, it wasn't the case. Early form of socialism from Darwin there, and I suppose. In a, Absolutely. In a That's something that Wallace was also very interested in. He was, he was early on exposed to the ideas of Robert Owen, who was a sort of pioneer utopian socialist who founded a place called the, the New Lanark Mills, where he, which was a sort of model factory. And Wallace was was exposed to that very early on, and it, and it certainly was a great influence on his beliefs going forward. So Darwin was better adapted to his environment by the fact that he had all these financial advantages, and yet he depended, I suppose, on help from someone who was financially less capable, but um, actually seeking reassurance, seeking a mentor. He's sort of lower down in the food chain, I suppose. Yes, it's safe to say that. And um, But this was very typical of Darwin. In fact, if you like, he used a very early form of crowdsourcing to get ideas from people from all over, from people around the world. He would write to gardeners. He would write to the Gardener's Chronicle. As I said, he would write to pigeon fanciers and, and visit pigeon fanciers, clubs and so on. And um, social class was no obstacle to the truth. And so the relationship with Wallace was very sort of typical of his relationships. Let's get back to a bit more detail on Wallace specifically. Like Darwin, people know about the Beagle voyage that Darwin went on, but um, how many expeditions did Wallace go on? Where and when, Howard? Just before we get on to that, I just mm. want to pick up a point earlier, which is that, he, that Anthony mentioned that he was born in Wales, and, and indeed he was. He was born in, in Usk, in Monmouthshire, but... Um, Actually, this has led to a, a bit of a tug of love about him because his family was essentially well, Anglo-Scottish in, in their background. But he happened to be born in, in Wales, although, in fact, Monmouthshire at that, at that time, there was some ambiguity about its status, whether it was England or Wales. So just thought I'd deal with the sort of nationality uh, question. I think probably safer to call him British, really. But getting back to the the expeditions, there were two major expeditions. I've said this to the Amazon, which was between... 48, 1848 and 1852, that he went on with a colleague called H.W. Henry Walter Bates, who he'd met while working as a teacher in Leicester, which was his kind of second career after the surveying. And then the second expedition was to the Malay Archipelago, which was 1854 to 62. So eight long years out there. This is the one where he covered 14,000 miles and collected 125,000 specimens. So, I mean, really an extraordinary achievement, especially when one bears in mind the difficulties of, of travel and so on in that era. How did Wallace fund these expeditions that were years long then? Well, yes, I mean, we come back to his need to work and economic necessity, really, because actually what I guess I hadn't really appreciated until I started to uh, research this was that the sale of these specimens, I mean, you know, collected 125,000 of the things on his uh, second voyage, as, as, I, as I've said, but the sale of these specimens was actually pretty lucrative. So he was doing this partly as a business. It was partly a means, a very agreeable means as far as he was concerned, because he was interested anyway, but it was a means of making a living. I mean, and there was a, a demand not just from museums. I mean, you had the great uh, sort of Victorian rise of, of the museum at this time, but also private collectors. I mean, everyone had their, everyone of a, a certain class had their cabinet of curiosities that they, they wanted to um, add to. 
So it was a lucrative business, and that is essentially how he funded and, and, and justified the expeditions. Um, I have to say that the first expedition was visited with disaster in that sense, in that in 1852, when he was coming back from the Amazon, the boat with all his specimens on caught fire, and most of them, including live specimens, were destroyed, were killed, which was a terrible blow, but one from which he managed to bounce back, which again is, is pretty extraordinary. Did the boat sink as well? Yeah, it did. Yeah, I mean, they were, they were floating around on a in a lifeboat for a few days until they got picked up. So, you know, it was a fairly traumatic event. Do we know how many specimens were lost? I don't know the figure for, for that particular expedition. It wasn't as much, it wasn't as many as for the later, the eight-year one, when he collected 125,000, but uh, it, it was a good number. It was a terrible loss to him. He managed to save, I think, a few drawings and notes, and that was about it. Right. So that's a lot of money that's fallen into the ocean, effectively. Yeah, and a lot of knowledge, a lot of potential for knowledge anyway. That thing really was a blow to his confidence. And he vowed then not to go travelling again. And it wasn't until back in England, sometime later, I suppose after some period of time had passed, that he started to revisit the idea of going back to the tropics. And so eventually he did. The pull of the tropics, it just proved irresistible to him. At what stage in this quite long early part of his career where he's globetrotting effectively, did he hit upon this idea of species changing and adapting to their environment over time? Well, this was on his second expedition when he's he's out in the Malay, in Malay Islands. He's in the Moluccas, February 1858, and he's, he's suffering from malaria. He's got uh, sort of intermittent fever and so on. So he's lying down. And as he said, and every day during the cold and succeeding hot fits had to lie down for several hours, during which time I had nothing to do but think over any subjects that then particularly interesting me. So there's a good justification for any idlers out there is that he was just sort of lying around thinking about stuff. And this is when it came to him. And it was based on him thinking about how he'd read a book called Principles of Population by Thomas Malthus, a book that came out in 1798. Now, Thomas Malthus was a clergyman who wrote this book, essentially, it was a sort of a rather alarmist tract, really, about how food supply was not going to be enough to feed population going forward. And it sort of turned out to be, for various reasons, not true. But nonetheless, it was very influential on, on a lot of people in terms of the sort of principles it, it set out about the, the increases of population and so on and, and what and controls upon it. And it's really at this point that it came to him. And, I, and I, if I, can, I can read you some of the account from his autobiography about how it happened. So he was thinking about the what happened to keep species numbers down in terms of disease and destruction and so on. So vaguely thinking over the enormous and constant destruction that this implied, it occurred to me to ask the question, why do some die and some live? And the answer was clearly that on the whole, the best fitted live. So it's him that comes up with this phrase, survival of the fittest, which is associated with Darwin, really. But I think it is Wallace who originally comes up with a very similar phrase. Anyway, so the, the words in a, a slightly different order. Mm. But so that's and this is where he comes up with it while he's having this attack of fever in the Moluccas. When we say best fitted, we basically mean best suited to the environment in which the species lives. That's right. Yes. 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 Best. Best adapted to continue to reproduce, basically. Yes, because it makes life easier, doesn't it, effectively? Yeah. So we've got to the stage now where he's hit upon this idea. It's come about through this malarial, I suppose, vision, you could say. What about the interactions that he enjoyed with people on these long and varied travels? You've mentioned that he kept notes, some of which he managed to save from the fire and the boat sinking in that first trip. But... Did he recount stories about local indigenous people who he worked with or met? Yeah, I mean, his his attitudes on the whole were pretty enlightened by the standards of the day, even if the language he used was not language that we would use today. For example, in, in 1906, he wrote uh, in an article with the rather unpromising title of The Native Problem in South Africa and Elsewhere. He wrote... For nearly 12 years, I travelled and lived among mostly uncivilised or completely savage races, and I became convinced that they all possessed good qualities, some of them in a very remarkable degree, 
and that in all the great characteristics of humanity, they are wonderfully like ourselves. Some, indeed, among the brown Polynesians especially, are declared by numerous independent and unprejudiced observers to be physically, mentally and intellectually our equals, if not our superiors. Now, that's, for the time, say, pretty strong stuff for a lot of of people, but that's what he believed. So, in other words, his interactions were very positive. You know, he had a positive view of the people that he met and lived among. And he was out there for a good long time. As I say, it's, it's 12 years, as he said, in all that he's out on these expeditions. He goes into these expeditions like a scientist then, with a with an open mind. As you would hope a scientist would. Yes, indeed. But I mean, the point is, is that a lot of, a lot of people around that time didn't take that view. I mean, essentially, they had a kind of white supremacist view on things. And in fact, the scientific community was very divided along those lines. I mean, there was a a division between the anthropological society and the ethnographical society, for example, when the anthropological society essentially believed that, that didn't believe in a common ancestor. They believed that white people were different, whereas the ethnographical society did believe in a common ancestor. So you had these sort of divisions did actually, you know, affect the scientific community too. Mm. And I suppose bias can then creep in and, and then pseudoscience stems from that potentially. Anthony, you were going to make a point as well. Yeah, I was just about to say that that sort of language by today's modern standards is pretty horrific, but it's it has to be seen in the context of the time. And this was language which was commonplace. So although now we find it abhorrent and, and offensive, uh, grotesquely offensive, that was certainly the sort of language that they, they used, including Darwin. Although, you know, you could read that and think, oh my God, racism, isn't this, isn't this terrible, white supremacist sort of thing. But when you actually go into the detail of his interactions with the Fuasians, for instance, in South America, he's full of praise and admiration, just like Wallace was. So there you can see parallels as well. Let's look now at a bit more detail regarding the Darwin-Wallace dynamic. We touched on the letter writing aspect, but um, why did Wallace write to Darwin in 1858 with this idea, this world changing idea? So we've mentioned that he was in the Malay archipelago. He was having these uh, hot and cold sweats. We believe he was had fever of malaria at the time, and he came up with this idea. And because he admired Darwin so much, he confided in him, and so he sent him this letter outlining his ideas. And just to be a fly on the wall, when Darwin opens this letter, you could imagine his horror. And so he calls to Down House an emergency meeting three of his closest friends and real heavyweights of the scientific world at the time. That's Lyle, the very famous geologist, Hooker, the director of Kew, and um, Thomas Huxley, who becomes known as Darwin's bulldog. And four of them in Darwin's study discuss the letter. And they're all aware that Darwin had been working on this idea since his first sketch, that very famous sketch, which mysteriously went missing from the Cambridge University Library and um, has thankfully been returned. So Darwin was able to demonstrate that he'd been working on the same idea for decades. But because Darwin was such a humble man, he took no hesitation in publishing jointly. So quite rightly so, Alfred Russell Wallace is jointly credited with coming up with the theory of evolution by means of natural selection because the two men published jointly in 1858, and that really spurred Darwin on to write an abstract of his big research work, which became known, as as we all know, as On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. That's a positive collaboration by the sounds of things. Did it sort of continue post-1858? It certainly did. One of the common uh, misconceptions and um, criticisms levied at us here at Dan House is that there was animosity between the two men. And in actual fact, it couldn't have been further from the truth. Although they didn't collaborate formally again um, in publications, we know that Wallace was a friend of Darwin's and he was a regular visitor to Down House. So this notion that there was any animosity between the two men is utter rubbish. In fact, Wallace was a pallbearer at Darwin's funeral at Westminster Abbey. So that gives you an idea of their closeness. Did they work on any other projects together? Not to my knowledge. I don't believe they did, but I do know that they had many, many conversations, both uh, here at Down House and uh, probably in London as well. 
and they exchanged ideas and um, they disagreed sometimes on certain things, but on the whole, their theories were remarkably the same. Because of the similarity in in the theories and the way they've sort of gradually developed individually through their own expeditions and making their observations, do we know, according to the documentary evidence, who was the first to hit upon the theory of evolution by natural selection? I mean, we've, we've already said that Wallace had this idea of survival of the fittest, the species suited best to the environment in which it was living. But did he have the piece of paper that proved it with a date versus Darwin? I would say that Darwin was able to demonstrate he was first, first writing that sketch, The Tree of Life, in 1837, and then writing an outline of his idea in 1842. And he was aware of the gravitas of what he was coming up with, because you can imagine in a God-fearing Victorian society what that was like. And in fact, he said to his wife, Emma, I feel like I'm confessing to a murder. And he really feared for what the reaction was going to be from the British public and the scientific community, because it was going to really rock the foundations of all of British society and around the world. That's the reason for him really procrastinating. And he wanted to rigorously test his theories in order to release it to the world. One of the biggest criticisms levied at Darwin after On the Origin was published was that the book was too small. So what he did then was he spent the rest of his life at Dan House testing that theory. But it was certainly Darwin that came up with the theory first. And um, I would say it's fair to say that Wallace was the catalyst. Is there any evidence then that Darwin felt safety in numbers to publish together with Wallace their ideas? Well, that's very interesting. I'd never actually thought of it like that. But that's Certainly, I would imagine, a possibility. And Darwin writes to his scientific friends, Huxley and uh, Lyle and Hooker, afterwards. And he says that the fact that they had accepted the theory and um, was far more accolade than he could ever hope for, even if the book bombed, just to have the mainstream and the, the sort of most respected heavyweights of mainstream scientific community accepting his ideas was more than enough for him. But yes, you could imagine as more and more people came round, he started to become more comfortable with the idea. But he he always struggled with it. He always struggled with his ideas because, for example, his wife was a a devout Christian and um, she feared for what would happen after he died. And so it was a bone of contention between the two. Yes, we discussed that on a previous podcast during our visit to Downhouse, uh, which people can explore through the English Heritage Podcast archive. Going back to Wallace then, did he have any particular concerns about publishing this material, which was so groundbreaking and so upsetting of the, until then, shall we say, natural order? Well, I think his sort of key divergence, I suppose, from Darwin was in that he eventually came to believe that the higher functions of humanity could not be explained in purely evolutionary terms. So this is this is how he develops. This is about contemporaneous with him developing an interest in spiritualism and things like that. So they do diverge somewhat in their ideas. So I, I guess I don't think well. I think Wallace was probably a bit more, as it were, gung ho. He would have he would have followed the sort of publish and be damned mantra a bit more. But nonetheless, his thinking did lead him in, in slightly different directions, which is a point of, of interest to, to point out. Yeah, so let's talk about how Alfred Russell Wallace's career develops after Charles Darwin publishes On the Origin of Species. How does he sort of move away from nature into sort of, well, from the natural into supernatural interests? He does develop a whole heap of interests, some of which, again, you come back to this sort of economic necessity he has to work. So, I mean, it's interesting, for example, in the 1871 census, he's described as author natural history. 1881 census, he's just described as author. In other words, he, the implication is he's broadened out considerably. And his his other interests, as I've, I've mentioned, spiritualism, which was, among other, other things, a belief in contacting departed spirits of the dead. And I think the death of his son at the age of six was something that really did affect him. And I think that probably influenced his interest in, in that. 
He was also interested in mesmerism, otherwise known as animal magnetism, the idea that there was some unseen force common to all living creatures. And then he had some somewhat more far out interests by present day standards. He was interested in phrenology, which was the notion that you could tell aspects of a person's personality by the bumps on their head, which doesn't have too many adherents these days, I think it's fair to say. And he wrote about an incredible variety of things, including the fact that he didn't believe there was life on Mars, debunking the idea that the lines on Mars were canals and so on. So he, he just ranged over a very, very wide variety of topics. And he also had to do things like, for example, mark civil service exam papers just for the money because he, need, he needed the money to survive. And it's worth saying, too, that in, in emphasis of, of the close relationship he had with Darwin, that, that it was Darwin's intercession in 1881, that got Wallace a civil list pension, which at least meant that he had some money to rely on, that he didn't have to uh, take quite so much of this, um, what would have been termed hack work at the time. As they're sort of going off in their different directions, they still remain in contact via letter. And does Wallace come to visit Darwin at Down House every so often, or, or is it just mainly uh, a distance kind of relationship? Well, we, we know that he visited in, in 1862. I mean, I have an, an account of this, which is uh, he went in the, in the summer of, of 62. And the biography of Wallace that I'm, I'm looking at, which is by Peter Raby, says that you know this is the kind of visit that Wallace especially enjoyed, where he was able to relax in a family rather than a society context and talk at leisure, pacing slowly down the sand walk with his benevolent host. So painting a picture of somebody very much at ease in their surroundings. I think actually that um, Wallace was somewhat inspired by Down to build the house that he built for himself eventually in Greys in, in Essex, but we'll, we'll come on to that a little bit uh, later perhaps. Yes, exactly, because that will tie into our blue plaques aspect. Can I just pick up on something Howard said? Yes, of course. Uh, Anthony, jump in. So he talked about the bereavement of his son and how that might have influenced his opinions on spirituality. Parents were no strangers to child bereavement in those days. And in fact, Darwin's beloved Annie died at the age of 10 in 1851. And we know that at that point, that is the point in Darwin's career where he sort of cuts off with any sort of religious aspect or any notion of that there is a higher being, not to be confused with spirituality, of course, but um, it's just interesting because this is where the two men did depart. Darwin believed that these abilities to sort of, these sort of higher emotions that humans have is all through natural selection, whereas Wallace regarded it as a, as a different aspect of evolution, spirituality. Mm. What I would like to mm. say, though, could I just pick up on another thing that Howard's mentioned? So, um, Howard mentioned um, the fact that Darwin sort of lobbied for a government pension because in 1876, we know that um, Wallace needed a £500 advance from the publisher of the geographical distribution of animals to avoid having to sell uh, some of his personal property. So Darwin was very, very aware of, of Wallace's financial difficulties and he lobbied long and hard to get Wallace awarded a government pension for his lifetime contributions to science. And so, again... This goes to show what sort of person Darwin was and, and how the two men felt about each other. I think it also points to, I mean, I'm not a scientist or a naturalist, but it sounds as though that within their tribe of scientists and evolutionary theorists and naturalists, they looked after one another, which is what people of a certain kin, certain tribe do or would have done thousands of years ago. So I think that's quite an interesting point, isn't it? That um, within the sort of yeah. brutalism of Darwinism, there is socialism and kinsmanship. Yeah, it is an interesting point. Not one I'd thought of, actually. Yeah, they do, within the scientific community, they do look after each other in, in the way that you've described often. Mm. We talked about Downhouse, obviously. That's very well known as being Charles Darwin's home for many, many years. Was it more than 30 years, Anthony? It was more, in fact. So they moved here in 1842, primarily to raise their family. They were living in, in London at the time, full of disease, overcrowded conditions, um, politically unstable at the time. And um, he wanted to raise his family in the countryside where there was clean air, but he could get back to the scientific community fairly easy if he wanted to. And so they picked upon down. The house them itself wasn't particularly, they weren't enamoured with it, but 
Darwin could see the potential in the countryside and the garden for testing his ideas. And so eventually they were both one round and, and they spent the next 40 years living here. And um, it wasn't long, I think it was a year after he moved in, that he wrote to his cousin that, um, I do believe I've fixed upon the spot where I will die. So he was sure that this is where he, he was going to spend the rest of his life. And he would spend 40 years working on, on his ideas and testing his, his various ideas right up until his death in 82. In fact, his last publication about the action of earthworms was in 1881. So it's no surprise that this location actually helps generate and promote these further ideas and experiments and letters and books, uh, articles, etc, etc. He was suited to his environment in that point, or, or his environment brought out what he was later able to produce. Yeah, we always introduced to visitors the idea of his living landscape laboratory, because he used the garden the glass house, the windows in the house itself, the surrounding countryside as a, a laboratory to test his ideas. And even in the house, he was doing experiments all over the house. So he was a, a very domestic scientist. And so he used the things that were available. Very naive by today's standards, you, you might say. But um, if somebody came up with an idea to challenge his ideas of evolution by means of natural selection, he would test that idea until he was absolutely sure that they were in fact, well, he was a believer in the truth. But um, thankfully, most of the time people did challenge, he was able to dispute their challenges. By contrast, Wallace then, did he have a nice environment in which to develop his ideas? Did he have a single home during most of his career or did he have several homes? How did it work, Howard? Well, he was pretty peripatetic, really. I mean, as I mentioned that he had connections with Neath in, in Wales in the earlier parts of his life. Also lived in Leicester for a while. And there were some addresses in London that he lived at with his brother in the 1830s and, and 50s between trips in Camden, uh, in the Camden area. On coming back to England in, in 1862, he spent the first decade in, in London. First few years, he lived with his sister and brother-in-law in Westbourne Grove Terrace, number five, which still is still there. Uh, he lived there in a, in a large empty room at the top of the house. It was empty before he got there. Obviously, he soon filled it up with specimens, including 3,000 bird skins. So, I mean, that was, I guess, a fairly settled environment with family where he was for about um, four years. And then when he got married in 1866, he lived at Nine St. Mark's Crescent in Primrose Hill which was also the home of his mother. So there would have been a you know a fair degree of, of stability there, except that, in fact, he seemed to spend most of his time around that point in Hurstpier Point in Sussex, uh, which is where his in-laws lived. And then the, the moves continued. In 1870, he took a, co a cottage in Barking that was called Holly House. Uh, I'm afraid that he called Barking a miserable village uh, and was very critical about its sort of the, the encroaching industrialization upon it. So apologies to any um, listeners in, in Barking for that, uh, that slur. <laughs> Is that Essex? Um, that's right. Yes, and it does come within the London boundary these days. Yes. Um, this was when he, he hoped to become uh, director of, of a museum at, at Bethnal Green. That actually didn't happen. And it, and it was also at this time that he, that he has this house built in Greys that I referred to uh, a bit earlier on, in, which is still in Essex, just but fairly close to London, sort of London-Essex. It was built with magnificent views over the Thames estuary. It was built entirely out of concrete, so it was very cutting edge. And, and this was the place that I suppose could have been his down house. But he moved out four years later in, in 1876, which from what Anthony said earlier about the financial problems he had around that time, I assume that that move must have been for financial reasons. And he then goes to Dorking, and then he moves back towards London, back to Croydon in 1878, and then Godalming 1881. And then his later addresses are in Dorset, Parkstone and Broadstone, and it's Broadstone that he's, he's living at um, when he dies in 1913, um, Broadstone being just north of Poole. Yes, Poole and Bournemouth both quite close together, aren't they? So it's that sort of area. That's right, yeah. And otherwise Surrey, effectively. Well, that's right. And of course, Croydon was in Surrey at that point. And that is where he has his blue plaque. His blue plaque is at 44 St. Peter's Road in South Croydon, as, as was mentioned earlier. Went up in 1979, which was exactly 99 years after he moved in. It was 1818. He only, only lived there for a year. And the house was called Pen Ebrin, 
when he, he lived there. He did have another house in the Croydon area just before that, which has been demolished. So that's uh, that obviously wasn't a contender to bear the blue plaque. Yes, I was going to say, it's quite a short amount of time for this period of his life to be reflected with a blue plaque. Was it a short list of contenders, bearing in mind that the well, blue plaque scheme it, it, is all relates to London properties? That's right. Well, in the 1970s, when the scheme was run by the Greater London Council, they didn't research things in quite the detail that, that we've tended to do more recently or indeed that happened before that period. So they didn't actually look into the other addresses. I mean, in some ways, Westbourne Grove Terrace might have been a better location for it because he's there for rather longer. I think there was a sense that they wanted to maybe, we could say, practice a bit of plaque socialism themselves because there were only, I think, at that stage, three plaques in the Croydon area. So I think they wanted to put something in Croydon partly for that reason. It was a reasonably good connection. There was a book, an important book that he wrote called Island Life that came out in 1881. So that came out while he's living at the address. It's not a feeble connection. It's just, I mean, and with somebody who's as peripatetic as, as Wallace was, I mean, it's, it's a bit hard to know exactly where to commemorate him. I mean, a, num- a number of places would do it, really. And I should say, too, that there's a, a private plaque on the, uh, the address in, in Grays in Essex, which has now been uh, still there was called the Dell, number 25 College Avenue in Greys, and it's now converted into flats, having uh, been a convent for many years, I believe. The blue plaque, uh, Howard, in South Croydon for Wallace, is it um, easy to get to? Is it easy to look at? Is, is the building quite distinctive? It was a newly built house when Wallace moved there in 1880. So it's, it's, a, it's a late Victorian house nothing particularly spectacular but it's it's a it's a good example of the kind of uh, houses of that era i should say for anyone visiting that the plaque is made of enameled steel normally our plaques are made of ceramic and they're actually inset into the building whereas this is enameled steel which is on the surface and they don't wear as well and we are engaged in a program of gradually replacing the enameled steel plaques it's not in brilliant condition it has to be said it doesn't show up quite as well as the the um, ceramic ones which do last really as long as the building that they're on. Uh, Enamelled steel don't. How does it all end then for Alfred Russell Wallace and his career? We've talked about how it developed. Uh, He seemed to have ongoing financial difficulties and also that bad luck with the expedition where the ship caught fire and then went down. And he had various jobs. He wasn't in the lucky position that Darwin was with a permanent property where he could focus on, on his ideas for decades until his death. So how did it all develop in his later years? Well, he is, he is very respected as a scientist. I mean, he's a sort of grand old man of science. I mean, he, he lives to the age of 90. He's writing right up until his death pretty well, publishes an autobiography in 1905, and he's you know, extensively obituarized when he, when he dies. But afterwards, his reputation definitely suffers a, a dip. It's interesting to note that there's a biography of him written in, in 1966, which was titled Darwin's Moon. So once again, you know, he's he's in Darwin's shadow very much, even by the title of a book about him. And then in 1976, when the committee that was asked to consider whether he should have a blue plaque are first asked about it, they initially said no. So, you know, they, they were they were prevailed upon to, to reconsider that. But it's it's an interesting reflection on where his reputation stood at that point. Basically, they just said, well, he's, he's not well-known enough anymore. This won't resonate with people. And uh, the Croydon uh, Scientific Society that proposed the plaque basically came back at them with, a, with rather more evidence that actually he, you know, he was a rather more deserving character and they were persuaded to reconsider. So that's a sort of an interesting indicator. And I think it's really only in the last maybe 20 years that his reputation has sort of come up and he started to get the recognition that I think he deserves I mean, as indicators of that are various biographies that have been published, some of which do actually push the line that he deserves to be credited ahead of Darwin for evolutionary theory, which is controversial. I mean, it's a it's a contested history. We have to we have to just say that and say, well, you know, it's something that people will probably continue to argue about. But other examples of how he's become more prominent: there was a statue unveiled at the Natural History Museum by David Attenborough in 2013 which was the 100th anniversary of his death, of course, so 10 years ago. So he's been honoured in, in various different ways, and I think his, his reputation is now much higher than it's been. 
That counts for a lot, I think, in the uh, contemporary zeitgeist, doesn't it? If Sir David Attenborough has lent his support to the idea that uh, Wallace was a key figure in this idea, which was shared by two men, effectively, and then supported by an, a whole community. That's right. And I think I think getting back to this idea that was shared, I think that, that some people do have a bit of a problem with the idea of a simultaneous discovery. And the point is, it does actually happen quite a lot. And it shouldn't really surprise us that in particular sort of intellectual atmospheres, two people come up with the same idea at a very similar time. And I should say too, in that context, that there were, there were other people around as well. I mean, I think both Darwin and Wallace would have been aware of a book called Vestiges of the Natural History of Creation, which came out in 1844. And this was a sort of pre-evolution book, which was very long on sort of ideas and very short on evidence. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't actually sort of a terribly good book by scientific standards, but it was very widely read, including by Queen Victoria. Prince Albert read it to her. And it was by a journalist called Robert Chambers, but at the time he published it anonymously, which I think, again, shows this the thing that Anthony was talking about earlier, which is that this was a very hot subject because of the religious implications of it. But this is a book that came out in 1844, influenced both Darwin and Wallace. So it just shows that really... Sometimes there's a keenness to pin discoveries onto one person, and actually it's more about collective endeavour. Yes. I think it's fair to say that there was a race on to find that question of all questions, the origin of species, or what leads to the transmutation of species, as, as they called it at the time. And it was only a matter of time before a Victorian scientist came up with this theory. And it just so happens that Wallace and Darwin came up with it at remarkably similar times. For Wallace's later life, you've talked about how he was working well into his late 80s and he died at 90. And where was he buried? How, was, how did the funeral take place? Was it quite a large celebration? He died at his home in Broadstone in, in Dorset on the 7th of November 1913. He was buried locally at the local cemetery in, in Broadstone, but there is a medallion and a, and a relief bust in Westminster Abbey. So there is that to commemorate him. Okay. Sorry, there is one thing that needs to be mentioned because we it's like the elephant in the drawing room. We can't talk about Alfred Russell Wallace without mentioning, of course, that yes, he deserves to be recognised equally like Darwin. And it's wonderful that his he's, uh, popularity and the awareness that people have about him is, is coming to the fore more and more. But he has been immortalised in the Wallace's Sphinx moth. During the Victorian period, a very unusual orchid came to light with a 30 centimetre nectar spur. And Alfred Russell Wallace very correctly predicted that that would be a sphinx moth, which was very similar to a moth in Africa. Now, this orchid had been discovered in Madagascar. And so Wallace said it will be a subspecies of this sphinx moth. The sphinx moth in Africa was called Xanthopan morganii. And... Um, I think it was in 1901, the pollinator was found. And lo and behold, it was a, a hawk moth with a 30 centimetre long tongue. And so in honour of Alfred Russell Wallace, it became known as Xanthopan morganii, subspecies predictor, because it was the existence of this moth was predicted long before it was ever seen. And I think it was last year, possibly the year before, that its classification was changed so it is no longer a subspecies of Xanthopan morganii. It's actually called Xanthopan predictor in honour of Wallace's prediction. But it doesn't carry his name as such. No, but it's, it does carry his kudos. Something that does carry his name, which I haven't mentioned yet, is Wallace's line, which, as I understand it, is the line between Asian and Australasian animal species, which he defined on his trip in, in the Malay archipelago. So, I mean, he was famously diffident. He refused honorary degrees and so on, and was not particularly interested in having his name sort of put out there, which is one reason why probably he was he was somewhat in eclipse for a large part of the 20th century. But uh, yeah, the name does survive in, in Wallace's line. So as we wrap up our discussion then about Alfred Russell Wallace, sort of hinted at it a bit there, Howard, about why Wallace was a bit less celebrated than Darwin, shall we say, diffidence and deference. Perhaps the fact that he's junior to Darwin played a role as well. Do you think he also shared the same fears of ridicule or rejection from society and the scientific community potentially at these 
groundbreaking, world-changing claims? I think possibly rather less so. I mean, partly by dint of being a bit younger and also, I mean, he wasn't shy about getting into some fairly, what we would consider fairly wacky ideas in some cases later on. So I think that was probably rather less of a thing with him. But I think that the lack of, he's sort of self-effacing, you know, I mean, he, he, he uses the term, happily himself uses the term Darwinism, for example. And he never objects to the fact that his paper, when their papers were read to the Linnean Society together in 1858, Wallace's paper is read second, which, you know, that kind of sets the tone a bit, really. And notionally, really, it should have been read first, perhaps. You know, I mean, that's that's a, a point on which, you know, people will, will continue to, to debate, I suppose, really. Bearing in mind what you've just described there, how should history be remembering Wallace? Should we be respecting the fact that perhaps he wanted to be a little bit behind Darwin as as the junior theoriser? Or should we elevate him more and make sure that he's sort of on an equal footing to Darwin in the way that the story is recounted? I think he should certainly be on a, on a, on a more equal footing. And I think that that has to a great extent happened, you know, and, and also it needs to be seen that he did work that was actually somewhat different from Darwin, particularly in this sort of area of zoo geography, which I I mentioned earlier. Do you have any thoughts on this, uh, Anthony? How how history has treated um, both these men? One celebrated clearly, and the other one perhaps less so. Yeah, and I think that's very unfair. If I was to describe who Alfred Russell Wallace was to anyone who visits Downer House, I would say he's the scientist that came up with the theory of evolution by means of natural selection. And I say that to our visitors time and time again, and they always look really surprised. And he should be regarded as Darwin's equal because he did come up with the same theory and they did publish jointly. I think a lot of it might have to do with the social classes at the time, but it's a great shame that he's been eclipsed by Darwin because he did come up with a theory of evolution by means of natural selection, and that's how he should be remembered. Bearing that in mind then, do we have any sort of references to Wallace at Down House or any rooms named after him or anything like that or any places in the garden? Or We don't actually. Could English Heritage perhaps be doing more to elevate Wallace within the Down House estate and his memory? A lot of our sort of interaction with the public and uh, our informing of the public is through guided tours both of the house and of the garden. And we never shy away from the Wallace story because you can't tell the story of Charles Darwin without the story of Alfred Russell Wallace. To discuss either of them in isolation, it's doing the other a great disservice. And so we tell history as we understand it, as it happens. And that is our role at English Heritage, is to bring history to life. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be asking your questions on everything you wanted to know about the Tudors. It is fascinating that two nieces, two women from the same family, rose up to such a high high status, Queen of England, and then both were executed at a later date on charges of adultery, actually. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>